Today's scripture reading is from uh, Mark 8, 22 through 9, 1. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And, we did, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and saw everything clearly. And he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And other ones, the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man may su must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The word of the Lord. Much as, uh, much as Rosa tended to dread family gatherings, she was looking forward to the Labor Day cookout this year because she'd have a chance to convince some of her fence-sitting relatives to vote for Obama. Her dad and uncles were beyond hope, but her mom and aunt were still undecided. Rosa felt secure in her belief she'd made the right choices. She worked for a nonprofit. She ate organic and rode her bike, even in winter. She'd quit her parents' dodgy church and joined the House of Mercy. <laughs> or she disjoined it, as they would say. She loved how ironic they were over there. Now, as predicted, the conversation at the cookout turned to politics. And Rosa was doing well. She definitely deflected all the Republican talking points that her dad and uncles threw at her. She sensed that her mom and her aunt were kind of leaning her way. And then in response to her dad's quip about the national debt, Rosa replied, Well, sure, Obama cares about the debt, which, by the way, George Bush is responsible for, but he also cares about things like public education. 
I know you support that, Dad, because you care about kids and their futures, just like Obama does. Now, all would have gone exactly as planned if it hadn't been for Rose's highly annoying cousin, Ben, who interrupted Rose's campaign speech to interject, So what future does Obama have in mind for kids in Pakistan and Yemen? What do you mean, Ben, asked Rose's dad. I mean, like, as they're watching the drone drive straight at them, do the kids in Pakistan think, well, thank God the guy who's authorized this attack that's about to vaporize me as a liberal Democrat African-American and not some right-wing ass like Bush. Rosa's dad laughed. Well, he's got you there, sweetie. I mean, I support the drones myself, but you have to admit, Obama's not much of a peacenik. Rosa was livid. What right did Ben have to accuse Obama, and by implication herself, of being a hypocrite? She was a real progressive, dammit, but also a pragmatist who lived in the real world and not some naive kid. She fired back that Obama was the best realistic alternative, in fact, the only one if you didn't want to live in a country governed by troglodytes, and Ben needed to figure that out if he didn't want to spend the rest of his life standing in the rain with a backpack and a picket sign with his anarchist buddies. Hey, Rosa, I didn't say it was simple, but all this Obama hype doesn't mean a damn thing to a homeless kid in Yemen or, for that matter, in St. Paul. Sure, he's better than Romney, but so is your mom's garden gnome over there by the grill. Rosa wanted to kill Ben. Her momentum was lost and the conversation drifted in another direction. She wished she could think of a way to tell Ben off the little jerk. Now come to think of it. She'd agreed to preach at the House of Mercy in a couple weeks and her whole family, including Ben, would be there. Maybe she could use her sermon to show how people like Ben were actually worse than the Republicans because they couldn't compromise and they were always pissing everybody off and making the perfect the enemy of the good. Yeah, she liked that slogan. Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. It would make a darn fine sermon title, she thought, or for that matter, a good campaign slogan for Obama 2012. Well, tonight um, our reading is from Mark's Gospel. Mark is a very short gospel. It doesn't include a birth narrative, so it's not much, much use at a Christmas Eve service. You never hear it there, even during the Mark cycle. Luke is much better for that. And it doesn't start out with a chronology of Jesus's ancestry, like in Matthew, or with a theological poem, like in John. Instead, it begins abruptly with a wild man preacher named John crying out in the wilderness, and it continues at a breakneck pace, pressing relentlessly toward Golgotha, toward the cross. Now, we've been going back and forth, um, these, and you always do, during these um, early parts of the, the gospel cycle. We've been going forth, back and forth between what they call the synoptic gospels and John, And this year, Mark is the synoptic gospel. So, you know, you've been getting both portraits of Jesus some. And the portrait of Jesus that emerges in these two gospels is really different. 
In John's Gospel, Jesus is the Son of God, capital S, capital G. That's probably why the early church liked John so much. Given how influenced the early church was by Greek thought, which really is different from the Hebrew Jewish theology that infuses what we call the Old Testament. So, according, let me, I mean, I know that sounds kind of academic, but let me give you a sense of it. According to some of this Greek thought, and of course, Greek thought is very complex and all, but God is impassive, meaning that God feels no pain or emotion. And God is omniscient, meaning that God knows everything before it happens. And God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. But this just isn't the case in the Jewish scriptures, except maybe the all-powerful part, but even that isn't totally clear. Have you ever noticed how God is always changing his mind in the Old Testament? First he decides to create humankind, then he decides to drown them, And then he repents and promises never to send another globe-encompassing flood again. And talk about emotional. The Old Testament God is joyful, or angry, or vengeful, or grieving, or damning, or forgiving. Anything but impassive. And the Jewish God doesn't seem to have anything like perfect foreknowledge either. I mean, people are surprising this God all the time. And just as people change and the world changes, the God of Judaism, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, also changes. Yet, although it isn't part of Jesus' own religious tradition, this view of God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-changing is very much with us, right? I mean, I know some of you grew up in a fundamentalist church, and it was sure there, but those of you like me who came up in the main line, it was there too, pretty much. And John's Jesus is patterned after this God. So John's Jesus also tends to be all-knowing, unchanging, unemotional. If in Mark, Jesus is mysterious and self-deflective, the Jesus in John's gospel knows exactly who he is and he wants you to know too. Hence, you know, all those famous I am statements, like I am the true vine, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, no one comes to the Father except through me, that kind of thing. I mean, what we tend to do, I think, is, you know, we have all these portraits of Jesus and we kind of smoosh them together. And so I'm just trying to highlight how different these views are. I mean, even when Jesus is dying on the cross um, in John, he gives like these eloquent sermons, you know, like he's on the cross and he's preaching to all these people and he's using sophisticated metaphors and lucid sentences. Well, different story in Mark where Jesus suffers in torment, tortured to death on the cross, and the only recorded words are an anguished cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So especially as compared to John, Mark is way over on the other end, placing Jesus in the context of Jewish theology, cosmology, and psychology. And Mark's Jesus never once refers to himself as the Son of God. Instead, he most often calls himself, like in today's gospel, the Son of Man, which is a vague and mysterious reference in Jewish theology. And he very rarely calls himself the Messiah either. I mean, he doesn't deny it. 
But it's others who call him that, who recognize him in Mark's gospel as the Messiah. And his response, as in today's gospel, is usually to tell them to shut up about it, not to say. It's like Russell said a couple Sundays ago. I mean, Jesus may well be the Savior, but he just doesn't really seem that good at it, at least in Mark. I mean, like in our gospel today, okay? I mean, think about this for a minute. He heals the blind guy, albeit after a couple of tries. I mean, the first time he kind of heals him a little bit, so he's not really blind, but like really, really nearsighted. But he tries again and gets it right the second time, and he gives him 20-20 vision, which is good PR for a Messiah candidate. And it's far from the only miracle Jesus has done by this point. He's already fed 4,000 people, and he's healed lepers and the lame. He's cast out demons and even raised a child from the dead. But every time Jesus performs a miracle in Mark, every time, he orders all the witnesses to keep silent. So, for example, when he raises that little girl from death, um, Mark records that the people were overcome with amazement. But Jesus strictly ordered them that no one should know this. Like in today's gospel, when he sends the blind guy, he says, don't even go back to your village. And when um, Peter recognizes him in the Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody. So I'm asking you, all right, let's say you're one of the disciples, Peter. Would you not get a little bit frustrated with this guy? I mean, seriously? I mean, every time Jesus does something miraculous, something that could put his movement on the map, he tells all the witnesses to say nothing. How could a strategy like that ever succeed in launching a successful messianic movement? I mean, presumably the fact that Jesus is the Messiah is why people would want to follow him. But he doesn't want anybody to know. But Peter does know. And tells Jesus he recognizes him. But how does Jesus respond? Not with praise. But by warning Peter and the others not to tell anybody. Not just suggesting it or even commanding it, but warning it. Warning the disciples not to tell anybody. And if all that weren't bad enough, Jesus isn't even willing to let silence prevail. No, he seems intent on doing everything he possibly can to push people away. So while he says nothing about his messianic identity, nothing at all, he seems not to be able to say enough about how much pain and suffering and humiliation await him and by implication everybody who follows him. I mean, the gospel says that we read today that he spoke clearly about that, not mysteriously. That he says clearly. This is really hard, you know, that he can say. No wonder Peter rebukes him. I would have rebuked him myself if I'd been there. Suffering and rejection culminating in being murdered. Is this really what a colonized, beleaguered people need to hear? How exactly is any of this motivational? Hardly the kind of change anybody would want to believe in. Now, you know, Bible scholars and preachers and Sunday school teachers 
They all like to tell you how thick-headed the disciples are. But I'm just not seeing that. I mean, Peter and the others were schooled in the Jewish covenant traditions. And there were at least two of them, two of those covenants, and neither was easy. According to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant given to Moses, the people had to choose between life and death. And if they chose death, which was always more tempting because it involves self-indulgence and idolatry and dancing and all the things that attract us, they would lose God's favor. But then there was this other covenant, and this covenant is really behind all the Gospels. And it's called the Zion, or Davidic covenant, after King David, in which God pledges unconditional loyalty and love to Israel through his servant David, a shepherd from the hinterlands, descended from Ruth, who was a Moabite rather than a Jew. And the Hebrew tradition doesn't gloss over David's struggles and deep flaws. We, I think most of us know the Bathsheba story, but there's other stuff too, like when David endured an uprising against his kingdom, led by his own beloved son, Absalom. David loved Absalom far more than Solomon, who succeeded him. Absalom was after his own heart. But David did nothing to protect Absalom's sister from rape by another of David's sons. So Absalom raised up an army against David. And when Absalom was killed, David wept bitterly. So what I'm trying to get at, see, this is, this is where I think you hear the disciples get a bad rap because they say, oh, well, haven't you heard this before? Like, they expected Jesus to come like a big king on a throne or something like that. And said, no, they didn't really expect that. Their tradition didn't teach them that. Their tradition about David taught them that the Messiah was going to come from a very unlikely place. It didn't teach that the second David was going to emerge in splendor like, you know, like Ronald Reagan in the 1984 Republican Convention. For a few of the older people after that one. Um, So Peter expected obscurity. He expected trials. He expected temptations. But, you know, he also thought, based on, you know, the history of David and 2 Isaiah, that the Messiah, who he knew Jesus was, would at least embrace his identity and would redeem and restore Jerusalem, the holy city. And instead, here he is, dealing with a guy who he knows is the Messiah, who doesn't seem to have any campaign message except to guarantee that his followers would suffer even more than they already were. And they were suffering plenty under Roman occupation. But to his credit, Peter never doubted that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And that's why he rebuked Jesus, I think. He was trying to tell Jesus that he's putting his entire messianic project at risk by all this secrecy and by this relentless emphasis on suffering and death. He's looking for some kind of a path some kind of a program that will actualize the promise he sees in Jesus. And for this, Jesus compares him to Satan. And then after doing that, Jesus proclaims what Paul and Luther and others have called the theology of the cross. We all know this. We hear it and we don't hear it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
Not only will Jesus face suffering and death, so will anybody who follows him. This is where people click their tongues and at Peter and then the others, and they say, why can't he accept that? If I had been there, if I would have been there, I would have accepted that. What's so hard about that? Well, I tell you, just about everything is. Everything's hard about that. The Danish uh, theologian, Lutheran theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, wrote that if you really want to understand how deeply threatening and offensive the gospel message is, you have to imagine yourself as a contemporary of Jesus and not the beneficiary of several centuries of organized Christianity. Then you'll see that Peter's a better disciple than most of us would have been. Now, we have lots of ways of spinning what Jesus' words meant, but if you just read them off the page, they seem pretty clear. The only way to really follow Jesus is to deny yourself and to die, if necessary, for the sake of the message, if it comes to that. That's at the heart of Mark's gospel. That, along with the promise that death won't have the last word, is the gospel. Self-denial, suffering, death for the sake of others, and not only for the sake of family and friends, I mean, we'd all die for our children or our loved ones, right? But also for the sake of perfect strangers. Who wants that? Who isn't offended? <clears throat> Rosa, Rosa tore up the draft of her sermon and decided to start over. She was having second thoughts about being so hard on Banny. You know, he was a good kid, if a bit obnoxious. She worried about him, though. He needed to step up his game and get away from all his anarchist Occupy Wall Street friends and all that stuff. And he needed to be a better communicator, too. He tended to say weird things. Like, for example, he did in this random conversation she'd had with him about a month or so ago, right after Rush Limbaugh had called that young law student a prostitute and a slut because she'd wanted medical benefits to cover birth control at Catholic universities. I just can't stand to hear that idiot's bombast, Rosa had said to Ben. Don't you think he's the voice of the devil? No. I mean, not for me anyway, said Ben. Really, asked Rosa? Then who is that voice for you? Different people, answered Ben. The devil wants to talk to me. He'll use the voice of somebody I'm close to, who's ever whispering into my ear at the time. Weird, thought Rosa. She decided to change the subject. So, Ben, are you going to... Um, are you going to apply to the Humphrey Institute like I suggested? Are you going to do that? I mean, I'm so excited for you if you did that. That way you could meet some effective people, not like these anarchists and dropouts you're always with lately. I mean, you could meet the right people, nonprofit leaders and like liberal public officials and like that. You could learn how to make change from within the system, which is the only place it's going to happen, you know? I mean, you, you've got some cool ideas, but you need to get yourself to a place where people with power will listen to you. Otherwise, you'll, well, you're just going to get frustrated and marginalized. So anyway, did you send for those application materials, or, or you can just download them online? Instead of answering, Ben smiled at her. 
What are you grinning about, she asked. Oh, nothing important. I was just thinking about the devil. Well, stop it and think about the Humphrey Institute instead. <laughs> yeah, he said, that too. So, according to all the gospel writers, including Mark, Jesus not only proclaims the good news, Jesus is the good news. But Jesus seems to offend everybody around him. And I have to ask you, where's the good news in that? As Kierkegaard, that theologian I quoted, said, it's easy to get behind Jesus when the church is always telling you what a great guy he is, but if you were around at the time, what would you think? I mean, I'm guessing I'd be offended for all kinds of reasons. Hell, 2,100 years later, I'm still offended, and in more ways than I have time to get into here. I mean, for example, the fundamental truth claim that the Gospels make, it's, it's like absurd, right? I mean, that there was this one guy living thousands of years ago in ancient Palestine, and this one guy is supposedly the embodiment of the ultimate reality that is God? In this age of science and reason, how can I believe that? But that is not the worst thing. I could get past that. On a deeper level, the Gospels offend me because they make demands on me that I hate and I don't want to fulfill. I don't know about you, but I try really hard not to suffer. I'm looking to avoid crosses, not take them up. And what could be more offensive, by the way, on a kind of a teenage, grossed-out level than drinking blood and eating flesh? I mean, it's like we get together here every Sunday and produce another episode of The Walking Dead. <clears throat> Yet despite it all, despite it all, week after week, we come to this place, this house of mercy, I guess just so that we can all be offended together. And week after week, at about this time, we come up to the table and take the offense into ourselves by swallowing it right down our throats. <clears throat>